All right. Welcome, everyone, to episode two of the Real Estate of Real Estate podcast. This is your host, Matt Bruns, the broker manager of the uh, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Select Properties South County office. I am here in my office with uh, our co-host today, Chris Gassel from USA Mortgage. Chris, what's up? What's up? Happy from turkey right yes it is uh december 2nd and uh, so we are just coming off of thanksgiving weekend did you have a good thanksgiving weekend it did travel family always always good to see people how about yourself yeah i did uh i ate too much um i think i had four thanksgiving meals uh, over this past weekend i'm out of room for any turkey there will be no more mashed potatoes for the time being uh, too much pie, um, never turning down a pie. I mean, I'm not a big sweet tooth guy, but uh, it's kind of rude almost to turn down the sweets. One of those things at Thanksgiving, you got to have some pie. Yeah, exactly. Especially so when it's like a relative, like, here, look at this thing that I spent a bunch of time <laughs> making. Eat it. Like, <laughs> As I cry into it. <laughs> yeah. Eat my tears. All right, fine. I'll eat some. So now um, you're switching to pizza? Oh, right, right, right. So, yeah, exactly. Sorry, so inside thing. It's an inside thing, but actually uh, we'll, we'll bring it up here. Uh, last week there was a, a few clips from an interview that the former uh, president and CEO and founder of Papa John's, John Schnatter, Shatner, something like that. Uh, he Shatter. was. Yeah, it, it, it sounds right. Uh, sounds good. But uh, he had said during the interview that he was kind of – uh, researching Papa John's uh, product uh, and how it's kind of gone downhill since he was forced out by the board of directors. And he claimed to have had 40 pizzas in 30 days. And so this Thanksgiving weekend, I was asking everyone that I came across, how many times do you have pizza a year? Just because 40 in 30 days is insane. I said that I was probably somewhere around 30 times a year. Um, Chris, you were more. Yeah, I was about 50. So, yeah. Yeah. But you said uh, he was tasting it and he was um, commenting on how it's gone downhill, right? Yeah. So tell John to stop ordering that sour grapes pizza. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> clearly sour grapes pizza is going to taste bad, buddy. Like, go uh, come back to St. Louis, get some Emos. Yeah. We'll show you some good pizza. Well, if you uh, like uh, pizza memes, if you like memes in general, just just Google uh, Papa John's memes. There's there's a lot of ones, good ones out there. I'm sorry for our friends in the EU who can't look at memes right oh, now. Oh, <laughs> I mean, he... Uh, he was like sweating bullets during this interview. He actually is full of freaking cars for I, pizza. <laughs> Jeez. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of jokes about how he's literally turning into a, a garlic bread knot. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah like sweating. Willy Wonka and the blueberries. Yeah. Sweating pizza grease on, on national television. Anyways, that's why Chris was asking me about pizza. So ask yourself, how many times a year do you have pizza? Send us a message. Yeah. Let us know. Let us know. Uh, and just for clarification that includes delivery making it your own frozen pizzas and anytime you have pizza out at some sort of dining establishment yeah we haven't established the ground rules of if i bought it on sunday but i had it again for lunch as leftovers does that constitute as two or one i say it's one because i only bought the one pizza i didn't think that far but i ate i'm going to say it's for for this purposes of trial Right. Say it's the purchased. Okay. Or okay. made. Okay. All right. Not purchased, leftover. made, ordered. Yes. Not leftover. Not leftover. Not okay. leftover. Okay. 
All right. Well, anyways, uh, let's get uh, into the episode now that we've been uh, recording for a few minutes here. Uh, Today, we've got a couple topics we're going to talk about. Uh, Recently, there were some uh, changes to loan limits um, that Chris is going to talk about. But we also talk about uh, Zillow 2.0 and uh, some uh, information on affordable housing in the United States and that issue. And then also some trends on new housing developments. Uh, But... uh, Chris, why don't you start us off? Uh, loan limits. Yeah, right before Thanksgiving, uh, the Freddie, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, they both uh, agreed the Federal Housing uh, Agency are going to increase the maximum base conforming loan limit, meaning uh, conventional loan limits before you get into jumbo loan territory. They are going to increase from 484000 to 510400 uh, this is obviously in response to the rising equity values, the rising housing costs, new construction. Um, for this to have risen twice in the last two years, this amount, I mean, it's gone up 60 grand almost, because I think it was 453, 100 before the 484. So, I mean, this is a very significant increase in conforming loan limits. Uh, the VA also had a little change on their loan limits. There is no longer a limit on the guarantee. Like it used to be that the guarantee 100% was based on the uh, conforming loan limits as well. But now the VA has a stance of they don't care if it's a $300,000 loan or a $700,000 loan, but they essentially uh, are going to now guarantee that, but in response to some things like Agent Orange mandates in the uh, Senate and some new bills, the funding fee has been increased slightly to accommodate those costs. So that's actually, it's there's good and bad to the funding fee increase, but the fact that the VA is no longer issuing that limit on guarantee is, uh, it's a pretty drastic change for a lot of buyers that had to have. So the, the deal is to explain what the difference is on a VA loan, if you went over the conforming loan limit, like say you were buying a $600,000 house and the limit is 510, 400 now, you would have had to come up as 25% of the difference in down payment. Mm-hmm. So if it's $100,000, you know, you'd have to come up with the 25% of that as a down payment okay. to, to accommodate. But now that there is no loan limit on the guarantee, you, don't, you can still buy a $700,000 house with zero down. Okay. Like okay. that's an insane yeah. change. Yeah. Um, so good news for you veterans out there. Uh, and then for those in the super conforming loan areas, uh, meaning high price, uh, high price, good Lord, <laughs> the high price areas, uh, California's, you know, those kind of things. In the Midwest, we really don't hit these uh, super conforming loan limits, but that increased up to 765600 um, that's just insane. But, uh, again, housing prices are rising, purchase prices are rising, equities are rising, and this is in direct response to that. Yeah. 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 So, uh, good, good to see changes. Yeah. And it's going to make buying homes easier for people at the higher ranges because jumbo loans and conforming loans are completely different games. Yeah. Jumbo loans, the investors basically get to make up whatever rules they want for whatever products they want to offer. Okay. And conventional loans follow very strict guides. There are some overlays, but for the most part, you know the ball field you're playing in. Jumbo loans, the ball field could literally be like Fenway where there's a big giant green monster in the back that's just waiting to take a home run from you. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, I guess it's uh, creating a, 
um, it, for for those those values, it's creating a little bit more predictability. It is, and it's it's again helping people in areas where home values are increasing the ability to get financing. Right. Right. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, let's uh, I guess shift uh, gears then to Zillow two point Oh, uh, Chris, your thoughts. Um, Richard Barton recently uh, starts the conversation again about his dreams for the future and plans for Zillow 2.0. So let's let's be real here. This is not a chicken little situation as media reports seem to make it sound. Yes. I, I feel like too many people are creating this doom and gloom scenario of, you know, big giant tech companies are going to ruin the real estate world. They're going to ruin retail. They're going to ruin cars. And let's be real. It just, none of it has actually happened. If you look at the car industry, the car industry has Carvana and all these other places you can buy cars online. Hell, even Tesla, you could just order your car with a credit card online delivered to you. But right. car sales are tremendously up. Car values are up as we all know. Right. Uh, you look at the retail sector uh, we did go through a phase where online sales were booming and getting closer to that mark. But I mean, they've never really breached that 20% of total sales, even though they've been a thing for the last 20 years, a no. little more. But now more people are actually going back to the stores because they they want that experience of customer service. And that's what Zillow really isn't going to be able to offer. And that's where these realtors you, yourselves, you guys are standing out on the front lines and you are going to be the ones that people go to and trust. A lot of people are going to have a lot of thoughts and a lot of hesitations when it comes to selling their house straight to Zillow. So I think, I think the media isn't portraying apples to apples. I think they're trying to create a scenario that honestly, in my opinion, doesn't exist. Yeah. I, I think the, the conversation about Zillow 2.0 has picked up steam. A, you kind of mentioned tech disruption. It's just kind of a hot topic. So, you know, any, anytime that the media can latch onto a story about tech disruption, it's going to get engagement. Also, I think, you know, consider the, the guy who's talking, consider the source. So the Zillow CEO, Richard Barton, um, he, you know, he's a co-founder of Zillow, but, you know, prior to that, he had started Expedia. He's a longtime Netflix board member. So this is a guy who carries a lot of clout when it comes to tech disruption. Um, and really, the news isn't really new. We've all known that Zillow, their whole plan this entire time is just little by little take over more parts of the real estate transaction, the home purchase transaction, uh, or the home purchase process, the home sale process. So, you know, basically when uh, Barton goes on TV and says that, oh, he's got this dream that not only are you going to be able to find your houses on Zillow, you're going to be able to sell your houses to Zillow through Zillow offers. And then ultimately, eventually, at some point down the line, you're going to be able to get your mortgage through them. You're going to be able to uh, get your title insurance and you know take care of closing through Zillow. And you'll be able to see all these houses by just visiting them yourself through the Zillow app and not even needing a realtor. And this is you know just kind of this, I think, uh, dream scenario that he's putting out there that uh, people hear and they're like, oh no, like this is going to totally screw us over. But how, how likely it is it? Is it for it to really take over market share? Well, and let's be real here. So one, they already have a mortgage company, so they're already kind of doing that. But I mean, if you look at the actual numbers 
of what he's talking about and this whole tech disruption thing. One, he's also saying that people are clamoring for this. Uh, yes, there are people in some industries and valleys that would love to see this happen, but not everybody's clamoring for this. So when you look at the actual figures itself, so far in 2019, uh, they were, at, at the time a study was done, they, they were active in 21 markets. They did $745 million in revenue, uh, but that's only 2,500 units. 2,500 homes. Uh, so three quarters of the way through the year, if you're going off last year's of six point you know, three or 6.4 million, uh, 75% of that is what, like 4.6, 4.7, somewhere around there, million. Sure. You were talking about 0.045% of actual units sold. I mean, the amount of transactions actually taking place is, is not, is not the same, but, uh, I, I do know they have big ambitions. Um, you know, they, they anticipate, I think doing about one and a quarter billion this year, uh, but in three to five years, they think they're going to do twenty billion a year. I just I don't see that happening. But this mm-hmm. experience thing we keep talking about of um, you know selling to them, doing everything through them. First of all, who here likes monopolies? You know what happens when a monopoly gets created? Mm-hmm. Prices soar because they're trying to destroy competition. Right. So one, I don't want to do a one stop shop. I I think having a separation of mortgage, a separation of real estate, a separation of title creates a fair playing field and a equal uh, financial playing field for everyone. Yeah. So I just, I think Zillow has great ambitions, but I think they're overlooking a lot of things. Right, right. And as uh, an experienced realtor will tell you, uh, you can't overpromise on the home purchase, home sale experience because it's very hard, almost impossible to control all the variables involved with the home sale, home purchase process. So that's another thing too, that I think, you know, I, I, I imagine that there's, there is some risk to uh, over promising and under delivering um, when, you know, they're, you know, pitching this whole dream experience of the, you know, home sale and home uh, purchase process, just going strictly through them, never having to leave your own house, never having to exit out of their mobile app on your iPhone while you sit there and watch TV. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing too is uh, when you think about, I don't really know how to put it, but when you talk about like uh, the whole going through your phone, going through your app, you're not dealing with anyone. Right. Like you you're clicking an ad. Right. You're putting in your address. Right. They're gonna look at their own figured Zestimate, which right. whatever, I'm not gonna get into it. Yeah. But you're this is not an experience. This is a analytical, data driven, strictly right. using our data, not yours or actuals, our data to right. determine value. Right. Like, right. what what is that? Yeah, yeah. They, yep. The person doing those numbers probably has never even been to your market. Right. Does knows nothing about your market, your neighborhood. Think about think about that. All the neighborhood differences in every market. Mm-hmm. There's high end neighborhoods. There's low end neighborhoods. Like, yeah. Do they even know what's trending? Yeah. Uh, you know, like in St. Louis, like there's a big thing uh, yesterday, the groundbreaking of NGA. Right. In North County, where everybody knows North County is an area that def- desperately needs help. So this is a welcome change in our market, but. That's 3,000 high-paying jobs going to the most desolate area in our entire city. Right. Do you think they're factoring that in? No. no. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about a 
uh, you know, he's talking about an experience that is, it's based off of quantifiable information. And he's talking about this experience in a process that historically has been uh, very emotional and also uh, heavily impacted by non-quantifiable factors or factors that are very, very hard to quantify just on the other end of a computer screen. Yep, 100%. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's, it, this is not game over for the real estate market, even if they do, you know, put a dent in it and they, you know, pick up market share. We're, we're talking about at best some, some, you know, a few percent. And even because right now you're talking about 0.004%. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's negligible at this point, which most tech disruption right. always is. And is there room for growth? Yes. Yes. There there is there is demand for this. I mean, there are scenarios where I could see honestly where this makes sense. Like you maybe you had trouble selling it on the market and you can sell it at a price that's reasonable. Maybe um maybe somebody passed away in your family across the country and you really just don't want to deal with estate and things like that and you just want something quick and simple to get the thing, you know, kind of done and sold. Right. There are aspects of this that are positive, but also this is a business opportunity for realtors. Uh, and I'm going to let Matt talk about it because he brought up uh, the perfect point when we had our own little segue personally about this. But he identified an actual financial opportunity that exists for realtors because of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, basically, so Zillow 2.0, part of this is their iBuyer um, transaction, uh, uh, I guess, um, offering that they're, they're making to, to home sellers. Well, they're not the only iBuyer company out there. There's, uh, Open Door, there's OfferPad, um, there's another company called Knock. There's, there's a few out there that have been out there longer than Zillow has. And for example, uh, Forbes recently did an article, uh, this year, this fall, actually back in September on Phoenix, which, uh, Phoenix, Arizona as a market was one of the first markets that iBuyers entered into. So they've been there for a few years and realtors have now been able to kind of uh, change up and adapt their business approaches uh, to work with home sellers on, uh, you know, basically uh, deciding on whether or not iBuyers is really the best way to go or if it's the traditional home sale transaction uh, is the best way to go. So instead of just the home sellers doing all the research on iBuyers themselves, realtors are actually bringing it up to them during their listing consultations as, uh, is this an option that you want to pursue? And then what they're doing is then they're working with them on getting the iBuyer uh, offers uh, through the different you know websites and then helping them do a compare and contrast between those iBuyers as well as uh, the traditional home sale approach. And what we're finding uh, across all the different iBuyer models is for the most part, if the seller's priority is to get the most money on the net when they close on that house, still going the traditional model is the best way to go uh, for getting the most money on the net. Um, if convenience, if quick close, if those two things are the utmost priority and this is a house that is accurately valued uh, by an automated valuation model, 
and it doesn't have a lot of repairs needed, okay, then yes, maybe, you know, if convenience is a priority and it fits those other factors, then yes, maybe iBuyer is a good solution for those home sellers if those are, those are the factors you're considering. But outside of that, there is a lot of information um, from past experience from other markets to, to suggest that iBuyers isn't the best way to go um, if they're, you know, wanting more money, if they're not wanting to pay as much for repairs, things like that. Yeah, and we're going to delve a lot deeper into iBuyers specifically in the next uh, uh, separate segment. segment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But let's also look at it this way. So I'm going to talk about a little bit of a financial aspect of Zillow and the risk part of this. So um, everybody remembers kind of what happened in 08 and 09. While I personally do not see that type of recession coming, there is potential for a recession coming, which affects jobs, which affects income, which affects buying of homes. But Zillow is over leveraging on a line of credit their ability to purchase these homes. So they're financing 85% of the value, which the value is very, um, like I said, kind of open-ended at this point. Is it estimate? Is it appraisal? Is it what? But a line of credit for them means they have cash on hand to buy it without going through traditional lending services. So they're also only putting in a 90-day holding period. Mm-hmm. That is very financially risky for a company that is putting a lot of eggs in the basket of trying to grow this. Right. There's a lot of overhead. There's a lot of technology. There's a lot of purchase. There, there's a lot of money involved in the buying of things up front and not seeing the gain at the end. Like revenue is not income. Right. A lot of people like hear revenue and like, oh my God, they did a billion dollars in revenue. Okay, well, they also lost 200 million in income. Yeah. So how, mu- how many m- hundreds of millions are they spending on just for bandwidth every ex- single month? Exactly. Like yeah. there's so much that goes into this. Yeah. While Zillow can sustain that model, Think about it this way from the perspective, too, and, and this is a personal vendetta, okay? Mm-hmm. The realtors out there, all of you, who live and die by leads, Zillow, truly, whatever it is, if your whole business model is wrapped around leads, you are funding this to happen. You are funding this tech disruption. Right, right. Like, I don't understand why you are paying someone to try and go after your business. Right, uh, and what, what was the stat off the, the article on their revenue? Oh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, so, so far, I, I think I talked about a little bit that so far this year they've done one point or they've done 745 bill, or 745 million. Uh, but if you're looking at their total revenue, I think that's what the question you're asking is. Yeah. 50% of this home was it Zillow offers is now 50% of the revenue. The other 50% yeah. is you paying them for right. leads, which there was a hundred million leads sold right. last year right and yeah across yeah the the 2018 stat uh that was released by um national association of realtor um uh, basically uh, uh, statistics that they had um kind of pushed out for 2018 sorry i'm rambling here but um zillow trulia realtor.com all these other online lead lead generation lead sources uh, it was about a hundred million that agents paid for and there was just over six million housing units that were sold so you know even if you said that there were no double dips and there weren't realtors representing both sides of the transaction even if there were two different realtors on every transaction you're still only talking about what 12 million units and so that's 88 million leads that realtors paid for that, that went nowhere. That went nowhere. Yes. Nowhere. Right. So, Again, you are funding right, right. your enemy. 
Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. So uh, going back to this whole uh, uh, chicken little thing, sky is falling. If you are one of those people, which you should not be, but if you are one of those people, you can't look yourself in the, in the mirror and say, this is going to happen. This is going to ruin my business. And then also that same month, pay your regular you know, uh, fee to Zillow for your, your leads. Yeah. And honestly, and this is not something Zillow has announced. This is more of a theory, conspiracy yeah. theory, if you will, yeah. you know, put on your tinfoil hats. Right. I truly think that once Zillow gets into the nitty gritty and they start holding these things for a long time, what do you think they're going to do with those homes that they own? They're, they're going to sell those as premier leads, as guaranteed listings, yeah. which, by the way, does not mean guaranteed sell. If they couldn't sell it in the 90 days, yeah. now they're going to sell it to you and try and recoup those funds right. to, to then have you sell it. Like, yeah. th- There's a lot of like things that people are going to end up paying for to just basically, hey, yeah, you bought this home, Zillow, but now I'll pay for that lead and sell it for you. Which, by the way, you think Zillow is going to pay you full commission? No. 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 Yeah. No. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that could end up tr- – that's why we talk about tech disruption. Zillow, I think, is going to end up putting themselves in a hard spot. This is – like he said, this is not chicken little. The sky is not falling. This is a disruption in the industry, and how you adopt and adapt early on is yeah. what's going to set the tone for the future. Right, right, yeah. Uh- All right, Chris, earlier this year – The National Low-Income Housing Coalition published a report on housing affordability in the United States, and their report this year found that in 99% of U.S. counties, the federal minimum wage won't allow you to get an affordable one-bedroom apartment rental. Isn't that crazy? It's it is crazy, but the the federal minimum wage is what seven seven twenty five seven twenty five. I mean an hour, yeah, an hour. And if you you know multiply that out by the number of you know uh, forty hour work week, and then you factor in taxes and you factor in you know everything else that you need to pay for nowadays in order to get by, it, it it's really not that crazy. Uh, yeah, I mean, that money that money goes away quickly. It does go away quickly. I mean, inflation is obviously a very real thing, especially in a market now where costs of living, costs of taxes, costs of just everything increases. But you know, when you financially are not making more, then that obviously impacts your ability to keep up with those those rising trends. Uh, you know, since two thousand eight. Um, you know, rents obviously dipped, I think, between 2008 to 2012, uh, obviously to combat the fact of the financial crisis. And we were trying to rebound the housing market in the first place because people couldn't even afford homes because they were underwater <laughs> and they were being foreclosed on at an unprecedented rate. But I mean, since 2012, uh, I believe it states that rents have increased two and a half to four percent annually. Yep. I mean, that's that's greater than the appreciation rate that people generally assume on homes. Now, the last three years appreciation in homes is higher than that, I believe. Yeah. In, in certain markets, but yep. that, that to me is crazy. I mean, are, are you getting a two and a half to 4% you know, raise every year? N- no, no. So, I mean, yeah. but I mean, that's, yeah. that's, I think the counter argument. Right, right, yeah. Well, and, th- and so that, that's, that's the part about it is, that federal minimum wage that that seven twenty five an hour that they're basing this this study on that hasn't risen 
since no. the uh, you know financial crisis that the U.S. went through um, in in two thousand eight two thousand nine. So, yeah, as you're talking about uh, the difference between housing costs rising and uh, wage increases, the, the the basis of this report is the the wages have not increased. And, I mean, and it's incredible to think too. Like, it it actually does dumbfound me the fact that you can sit here and not make rental payments as a single person on a one bedroom apartment in a lot of these kind of, like yeah the average rent it said is 970 for a one bedroom national fair average market rate is 970 970 bucks like that's insane um most house payments in our market uh range between the 900 to 1500 range you know for the upper 200 to 300 range mm-hmm. like and you're paying for an 800 square foot apartment it just i don't know it's sad. Yeah. It's yeah. just sad. It is sad. And and, and uh, basically, you know, in the report, the uh, like it was the National Low Income Housing Coalition, so uh, the NLIHC, they analyzed the different professions and compared them to the national fair market rent. But uh, in that analysis, in order for a one bedroom to be affordable, that person has to earn at least $18.65 an hour. Crazy. Which there's a lot of just common occupations that are paying less than that. Oh, yeah. And Especially in a growing occupation like uh, home health care people. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and also we're, we're speaking about that from, you know, we're here in Missouri, in St. Louis, Missouri. And yeah. there are a lot of people working for a lot less than eighteen sixty five an hour. Oh, a lot less. Absolutely. Right. I, 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 I do not know Missouri's minimum. And that's the other thing is like this topic of minimum wage that we're talking about federal minimum wage, not state, county, city. Yeah. Yeah. They obviously all have their own. Right. But I think Missouri's what in the eights, like eight seventy five, like the state minimum. It's it's somewhere around there. It's it's in the eight dollar range, but still, that's ten dollars an hour less than what they're saying. Like, that is a tremendous gap. Google says uh, state of Missouri is $8.60 yeah. uh, per hour. Yeah, yes. I mean, that's, that's a $10 an hour gap. Right. You're right. not even making half of what, like... Yeah, like, yeah. That, yeah. Is, that is crazy. Yeah, yeah, that is crazy. And uh, they did break it out state by state in the report to see uh, where the biggest gaps in affordability are. Um, so... Guess who has the highest uh, gap in affordability? Hawaii. Yes, correct. Yes, correct. <laughs> you just went to Hawaii. Yeah, I, I, so, immediately, I immediately went to brought up Hawaii in this this list because well, when I was on my honeymoon in Hawaii, I did uh, come back and immediately say one, it's super expensive, um, like really expensive, and I also uh, noticed how many homeless people there are, just like everywhere. Uh, that's another topic. But. Yeah, well, it, that's a whole other topic. But and we're talking about though, like a, a state that's it's isolated, and there are, you know, there are some depending on where you live within the state of Hawaii, there are some limitations on the type of you know employment opportunities that you have access to. Right. And so, 
you've got to, I guess, you know, for some people who maybe don't have, um, you know, higher education, they're just looking for, um, you know, a job, uh, any job that they can get. They have uh, limited options in that, that state. So let me guess. I didn't read that part. So this, I guessed Hawaii based honestly on what your conversation was when you came back. Is the next highest L.A. or New York? Uh, no, actually, in the report, uh, next highest is Massachusetts. Huh. I, I'll be honest, I would not have guessed. Yeah, would, wouldn't have guessed that one. But California okay. probably would have guessed that one. Okay. Uh, New Jersey, Maryland, and Vermont. I don't, I don't see any Midwest states on there. Just uh, yeah, yeah, don't, don't see uh, any Midwest states on there. So, um, so this, uh, anyways... I just thought that that was a, an interesting thing to talk about because there are, uh, as we you know get into this election year, um, housing affordability is starting to become uh, a, I guess, a conversation topic amongst uh, presidential candidates and their supporters. And I figure that it'll probably get uh, even, I guess, even more talked about? Is that the best yeah, way to talk about it's, it? This is going to be a very hot topic, uh, among other things, but affordable housing is something I think that's gaining a lot of transaction and steam because of reports like what, uh, what was their acronym? The National Low Income Housing Coalition, the NLIHC. That's yep. a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, their report, I assume a lot of that report, people are basing the emphasis on that. You know, and it's not just them, HUD has the reports. Uh, we've been seeing reports like this for a while uh, about rents rising and, you know, affordability concerns. And the government really has, I don't, I mean, the government hasn't really built homes in years like they used to mm-hmm. for public housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, those programs just aren't what they were. So, I mean, you're going to see, there are, there already are, I think, at least two plans on, this, on the Congress floor. Uh, but I know that, you know, we've seen debates where a lot of candidates have talked about their plans for housing and Yes. Um, so. Yes. Uh, as recently as a couple weeks ago, uh, two representatives uh, introduced housing bills to Congress. Uh, Representative Maxine Waters from California introduced a $100 billion Housing is Infrastructure Act of 2019. And uh, Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota introduced the Trillion Dollar Homes for All Act. Trillion. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, So I'm uh, borrowing some information from a report from Curb.com, but Waters Bill, uh, it's co-sponsored by Senator Kamala Harris, calls for an over $100 billion investment in existing federal housing funds like HUD Community Development Block Grants, the Housing Trust Fund, the Home Investment Partnership Program, and the USDA's Rural Renter Program. Um, So... Uh, now, the other bill, um, Omar's, uh, her act is the Homes for All Act, that would authorize the construction of 12 million units of new public housing and permanently affordable private units. So, uh, it so, calls for the federal government to be responsible for the maintenance and operations of all this public housing. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I, I like, so based on what you just said, the premises are good. I like the idea of infusing more money into the existing programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Omar, while I, I, I appreciate the reach for the sky mentality, uh, really trying to help everyone, but I just don't feel like a trillion dollar influx into that is going to work. And I don't think that the government, 
while I agree they should build some public housing, I don't think they should be maintaining and operating. They should be some kind of a joint venture. But, I yeah. mean, it, putting stuff into, you know, any type of HUD thing, USDA, uh, USDA, you know, in the Midwest is something that we use a lot. There's a lot of farmland. There's a lot of rural areas out here. Right. Uh, so that is actually a program that is really well designed to help uh, future homeowners and actually encourage people uh, to live in these communities as affordable housing as opposed to, you know, moving to suburbs and cities. So I would I would definitely like to see some more financial backing for those programs. Right, right, yeah. Uh, you're right. Uh, the USDA program is uh, one that we use a, a lot here in this part of the, the country. And, and obviously, no matter what the topic is, uh, efficiency is always a knock against uh, government um, sponsored programs and government ma- managed programs. So I definitely think there is some value to your comment about maybe keeping the maintenance and management uh, at a private level and not uh, government uh, government level. Well, and you think back in history, right? Government funded programs. I mean, do your research in St. Louis, just research something called Pruitt-Igo. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no shortage of documentaries. And, you know, these types of programs, unfortunately, create... I don't know the nice way to put it, but it creates some bad people in our industry, mortgage and real estate alike. Yep. I mean, there's a reason why redlining and steering and all of those things existed. It's because they felt they had the ability to push people to Section 8 low-income housing and uh, not push them into neighborhoods where they were trying to grow. Right. So, unfortunately, history has shown us that these types of investments kind of create problems based on a change in mindset shift of selling. Well, yeah, and I, we, we don't really need to dig into all the um, the, the problematic uh, history between oh, no. or, or on no. the, the you know government uh, basically government owned uh, housing in the U.S. If you do want to dig into that, I would encourage you to uh, check out a documentary. It's called Owned: uh, Tale of Two Americas. Uh, it's a great documentary about um, racism and uh, the you know, growth and expansion of uh, U.S. residential housing as well as, you know, government housing projects. So, um, yeah, if you want to you want to dig into that, uh, check out that documentary. I, I believe you can find it on um, YouTube, Amazon, Google Play, uh, th- those yeah. types of platforms. And if you do watch it, leave us a voicemail on what you learned and right. things like that. That'd be kind of cool. But I agree with you. We don't need to go into depth. I was just more stating that if we're going to do this as a government, as a country, we need to learn from our past mistakes right, and right. do this in a way that's going to make sense. Right, right. So I, I, I appreciate, you know, what they're trying to do, uh, and I love seeing action. I just want to see it done right. Right, right, uh, because that's also that's, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So I would hate to spend Well, if you spend that kind of money, what do you think is going to increase? Right. Yeah, exactly. Other rent exactly. and private development. Exactly. Yes. Uh, there's, uh, you know, effects all around. But um, while we're on this topic sh- – Kind of shifting gears, there's uh, also in the past few years, and there's been some r- recent, um, I guess, uh, startups that are um, kind of following this trend. But the trend of um, creating new types of housing that, uh, A, make it more attractive, uh, but also make it more affordable. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, recently uh, we started reading into this um, new uh, co-living company. It's called Common. 
and this is a company that is expanding nationwide. They already have developments in uh, multiple cities here in the U.S., but uh, this company, uh, they're called Common, uh, essentially what they create is um, I'm borrowing from an article, adult dorms. Yeah. So, so basically you rent a room, but then you are sharing all the other amenities within the building. And these dorms, so to speak, co-living spaces, not co-working, they're fully furnished too. Right. So, and they allow the flexibility of month to month. Right. It, it actually is a very creative solution to a problem of affordable housing right i mean it's it's yeah i i'm impressed with when a problem salt like comes out how the private sector yeah identifies an issue and, and what's cool is they're also taking old apartment buildings old buildings that were dilapidated or not going to be used or maybe torn down rehabbing them at a much much better cost than building new yeah, uh, which we've seen a lot of new multi, you know, uh, mixed use developments, and I'm yep. sure a lot of people have. Yep, Th- those things are expensive. Um, right. So by using real estate already in existence and changing it to a landscape where there's, you know, you can deal with the turnover, it's your furnishings, and hopefully, you know, there's not a lot of destruction. Yeah. Uh, which has been a problem in the rental space, but this is a very creative, intelligent solution to combat affordable housing. And one of the things I loved about this article and reading about common, cause I didn't know any of this stuff until we started reading about it was so like a uh, place like Chicago Midwest, right? Notoriously known to be very expensive. Uh, the average rental, uh, after, for my research in Chicago for a one bedroom apartment was $1,500. Wow. That's like in the city, not right. the suburbs, yep. but like the city, Yep. the average common rent in Chicago was nine seventy five. Okay. All right. I mean, that is huge for affordable housing. That yes. is a big savings. I mean, that $525 a month. Yep. That goes a long way. Exactly. And the uh, the other thing that I noticed in their their um, you know, kind of explanation of how they work is they they manage and they take care of of all the maintenance and upkeep for the the common areas. Yep. So, um that's that's a big deal. But uh going back to where they, you know, the company's plan right now, they've got about a thousand units across the United States, but their plan is in the next few years to get up to ten thousand units. That's crazy. Um, now, units meaning these individual bedrooms. So, uh, but uh, Denver, Boston, Baltimore, Portland—they're um, also looking to grow to. I mean, they're in California. They're in. Did we say Brooklyn? Brooklyn. Um, I think they started in Brooklyn. Okay. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. Uh, well, yeah, looking to get to 19 U.S. cities. Uh, that's their plan. That's their plan. Um, I mean, I'm I'm glad I've got my my own space. Uh, yeah. I, uh, but I, I also found out in my research that it's, it's shared bathrooms. It is. Yeah. It is. Uh, a, it is a dorm. Yeah. It it, it is a dorm. <laughs> and yeah, you're. I mean, now that you're saying that, your your comments about d- destruction. Oh. God. <laughs> well, and the other thing too is, as uh, I guess synergy between tenants. Like you're sharing a bathroom with people. Yeah. Like as an adult, that gets harder. Like in right. college, right? You kind of like understand. You but, like, deal with after it after college, right? As a twenty, I don't know, as a twenty-eight or thirty-year-old man, that I would really want to be sharing right. bathrooms with. I mean, it's like staying in a hostel. Yeah. Yeah. I but, know. If you're fresh out of college, 
yep. moving to a big city, got that great new job, starting your career as a professional. Yep. This is actually a pretty cool idea of you've already used to that living mentality and landscape. Yep. And maybe you'll make friends in this new city that you didn't have before. Yep. And now all of a sudden you've created a sense of community, hopefully. Yep. So there, there's a lot of cool positives to... Right. This idea. Right. You know, I, I have heard of multiple friends who have had to, you know, move to Chicago or move to New York. They got this job. They weren't sure if they were going to be able to get this job because, you know, they're competing for that job along with hundreds of other people from around the country. And then they get the job and then they have to move to the big city. And they, in, you know, in New York, it's very frequent that it's very hard for them to find a lease somewhere. Yep. And do you want to share a long-term lease commitment with people that you don't know that you just met off of Craigslist? Or would you just give this a shot for a couple months, maybe a few months, there's no long-term commitment, you're paying month to month, you figure out where you want to be in the city, you figure out if you like that job or not, and then you also figure out some potential new roommates before you sign that long-term commitment. Absolutely. And yep. at the same time, if you like it, you're going to be saving a ton of money Yep. compared to other rents in the area. So, yeah, I mean, kudos to them. And I think it said uh, in the article that there's already like three or four com- like similar competitors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, and this is a company that started in 2015. Common. Right. Well, their first building opened in 2015. I don't know when they started. But the fact that in four years they've already spurred competition they clearly shows that this is a good idea right right and they got cool cool names too uh <laughs> the the one uh, uh competitor hub house hub house but it's spelled like a, the german uh house so h-a-u-s that's that's fun and then another one star city star city yeah that's yeah. what i'll talk about star cities in california imagine that no. uh yeah no 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 um so anyways that's a that's a cool new thing as far as uh housing um there was also another article that we uh just saw online recently about um in the apart new apartment development projects this kind of war amongst developers uh to attract tenants but they're using or they're using new services and new technologies uh, in order to beat out their competitors. So it's you know this whole uh, I guess kind of race amongst developers to add new cool things that will attract rent renters. So um, basically, you know the the article is just kind of talking about how developers they're you know you don't just have a fitness center, you don't just have a pool anymore. You've got to have a you know, you've got to have some sort of like, like a common area. Yeah, common area. Um, they mentioned this new development, in San Diego, that has you know Peloton gyms. They oh. have uh, a, like a workshop area for people that are crafty. Um, they have you know not just the outdoor terraces, but the terraces that you know come with extra amenities, like art galleries, like really like above and beyond stuff and you know this is not in the articles but this is just something that i thought of if i'm we work and common mm-hmm. i'm building a building because i think of the industry's shift of remote working and i know there's a lot of talk about how they're now re-looking at that but there's a lot of people that work remotely there's a lot of people that you know just work from home in general 
if you could find a development where not only do you get to go live there, you have these great things you're talking about with the Peloton gyms, the common areas, the bars, the gyms, the smart apartments probably. Yep. But also there's a spot that's already included in your rent in that building where everyone in the building, like if they choose to, works there as well. So now you don't have to pay for a co-working and co-living space. Right. Right. Like that to me is like I can work and play in the same place and you're in hubs of cities or areas that are of interest. Yep. I mean, that's marrying some great worlds. Right, right. Yeah, and, uh, it, you know, some of this exists. Uh, some of these, you know, new developments already exist in the St. Louis area. Um, there's one in Richmond Heights, Brentwood area off of Highway 40 near the Galleria. It's called Evo. Uh, if you're driving uh, east or west on Highway 40, they're approaching the, the Galleria um, Brentwood Boulevard exit. You can see it up on the hill. Uh, there's Cortona, which is um, in the city uh, by Dogtown. Uh, there's the Barton building, which is in Clayton. Clayton also has the Ceylon building. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I know some of those, you know, they've got basically a, a, a pet spa for you to wash your dog. They have, you know, electric car charging. They have concierge services. Uh, one of the buildings in, in Clayton, they have a temperature-controlled wine storage. Dude. So you don't got your own wine fridge? No big deal. Just give it to the building. They got you. Yeah, they got an own, their own little locker for you in their community wine, uh, basically wine, wine room, wine cellar. So See, that's, that's what – innovation, man. Right, right. Innovation, technology, service. Right, yeah. Creating that experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and also the smart home features too. That's, that's a big thing in these new developments. At home, you own your house, you're thinking about, am I going to do the ring doorbell? Am I going to do the Nest thermostat? Am I going to, you know, get Sensi or yeah. am I going to get one of these smart home technologies, right. you know, connect it with Google Home or Alexa? Or Simply Safe. Yeah, one of those things. Yeah. Well, same thing with these apartments. Just because they don't own the place doesn't mean they don't want that, you know, smart home capability. So exactly. a lot of developers are having to add those things as well. Yeah, and, and you might be asking yourself, why are they talking about all this fancy stuff after talking about affordable housing? <laughs> I mean, but that's just kind of like the environment, right? So there is a need for the upper echelon style of living yep. in this case. Yep. But then there's also the need for the affordable housing. So you have market segments. Right. And that's kind of what we're talking about. And these are the type of people for you real estate people uh, that are listening. These are the type of clientels that in a couple of years, they're going to want to own homes. Right. These are the type of like projects and people you want to get in front of. Right. Because ultimately they're going to say, yeah, this is great, but now I'm kind of ready to own. Right. So. Right. Right. Uh, and when they get ready to do that, you be, better be able to, you know, work with them and the way they want to work. So make sure that you are up to date on you know, all the latest uh, apps, um, all the latest communication methods, um, being able to get them the you know, data at their fingertips to make the decisions. So you got you to gotta make sure that you are uh, at least savvy enough technically yeah. uh, to, to work with these types of buyers. Have Alexa read them addresses of available homes that match their search criteria. Yeah, something like that, for sure, for sure. Okay, well... Along these same lines, though, as far as um, different segments for new housing developments, 
there was an article that came out uh, today uh, in Inman News about a new startup that is uh, opening up in the Phoenix area. It's called Cul-de-Sac, and it is uh, attempting to be the first, the quote from the article headline, from scratch, car-free community in the United States. It is supposed to be a community that will house... How many people did they say? Where are we at here? Uh, I'm really, really I mean, killing this. Really killing well, this. Well, yeah. while you're searching, I mean, that's insane to me. The first car-free community. It, yeah. It's not just cars in the cul-de-sac, so to speak. Yeah. But to get to and from, like, where, where are they looking to build this? Thing? So yeah, so it's gonna. This community is supposedly gonna house a thousand people. There's gonna be wow. zero cars. Uh, it is it's going to be built in the Tempe, Arizona area, which is right outside of Phoenix, and it'll be built along a um, it's supposed to be built along a commuter rail line. So okay. Um, okay. it does have that going for it. Uh, and it's it's not that far from downtown Phoenix. Uh, the article says that it's uh, gonna be about eight miles from downtown Phoenix. So but the, I mean the problem is is, some people just like driving places. Um, and then the other thing that this article brings up is a very good point. It's very hot in Arizona. Very hot in Arizona. Yes. I mean, and yeah. But I mean, I get the idea. So if you could literally leave your house and go straight to a rail and then go to work and then come home, there's no traffic, there's no headaches. The I mean, obviously, are we anticipating and this is more of a, I think, a bounce-off discussion now. Mm-hmm. Are we anticipating a lot of potential Uber rides? Are we anticipating Instacart as being your primary delivery service? Is your grocery, are they going to build a grocery store in this community? Because, I mean, like in St. Louis, it's not in St. Louis, but it's pretty much in St. Louis, like Newtown. Yeah. Like, that's a community, it's not car-free. Right. Like, this is completely different. Yeah. But Newtown was something along, they built, they wanted to build their own town. Right. They wanted to build their own grocery stores, their own entertainment district. Like, right. So how in this, how is this cul-de-sac going to, I guess, deliver the needs of that community? Because it's not just housing and getting to work. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea how it's going to, to meet the needs. Uh, I, I think that the, the weather is really just, as soon as I read that in this article, I was like, nope, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> You mean I gotta sweat everywhere I go? No thanks. No. I mean, but yeah, walking every. I mean, a thousand. You said a thousand. Thousand people. I mean, that's a big community, right? A thousand people is like that's not a small neighborhood. That's a big neighborhood. Uh, so, uh, Brentwood Forest in the St. Louis area, that supposedly has about fourteen hundred units. But it's a mixture of one bedroom, two bedroom, and three bedroom units. Yeah. So now that's fourteen hundred units, and let's just say that this is all going to be spread out similarly. Uh, I mean, that's a. It's like a. If you do a loop around Brentwood Forest, I'm pretty sure I measured it out. If you did the whole loop, it's over a mile. Um, but let me ask, why? Why no car? Like, I don't feel like this is solving a problem. Well, duh. I mean, all right. 
Okay. I'm not saying like climate change. Like that, right, is, yeah. that is not the discussion right yeah, now. Yeah, don't even put that on me. <laughs> that's that's exactly where I was going to go that, with that. No, yeah. that is not what this is. A thousand cars, or not even maybe six hundred cars. What problem? Like if this was something where it was these hundred thousand, they could probably use a loop trolley. They could. Use, oh my god! Yeah, you guys want to buy a loop trolley? Because we can't use it anymore. It's we super efficient. It. It's super efficient. Yeah, you just hyperloop a mile. <laughs> just hyperloop. I think Elon Musk is going to come in and bore tunnels. Right. You're going to walk underground so it's not hot. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe this will just be like a. a it's like a, a a mole community. Yeah. Like a bunch of mole people. Elon, you listen. I know you love the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. I, I got a business opportunity for you. We're going to hit up that cul-de-sac company. Uh. So yeah, the, the the weather is a thing. The lack of transportation that's a thing. I guess you're relying on delivery services. You're relying on you know uh, lime scooters or bird scooters. I, I was just thinking the scooter thing too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the bikes, um, like the city bikes, the lime bikes. You know, RIP lime bikes. Does it um, have like a distance? Because when you said a mile, like a mile is not to me that long. Obviously, like walking wise, in a hundred degrees. <laughs> It's long. Yeah. Especially if it's every day and everywhere I want to go. But that's units. Like, those units are stacked, right? Yes. So, in this concept, I assume they're stackable units, but are there houses, too? Well, so... And there's a car in the concept picture. Well, so this is is the entrance. Entrance. There, there is the entrance to. I'm just saying. I know. Your there's whole a, concept is a carless society. Yeah. And there's a car in your concept. But look at all those bikes. There's look at all those scooters. And that's cool. I I love the bike and the train. Yep. Train. I, I'm cool with it. Yep. I just I I find it hilarious. Car free community and the concept has a car in it. Yeah. Well, so uh, you know, I am a realtor talking about this. You know, Chris is a loan officer. In this article in Inman, they uh, reached out to a couple realtors in the local area for their opinion, and neither neither one of them thought it's going to work out. No. So, so yeah. Um, you know, I I do think that walkable urban design is something that's you know valuable, but yeah. I, I I do think temperature you know makes a difference because I, I I also know. I know people that like live in New York City and they could just like leave their office building, walk down the street and, you know, get to the nearest train station and then take the train, subway train to their, you know, whatever part of town in the city they live and then hop off and then walk to their walk to their apartment. But in the wintertime, they don't. Yeah. I know those people, they are taking lifts, they are taking Ubers, they are doing rideshare, whatever they can, because it's brutally cold outside. Yeah, especially if there's 12 inches of yeah. snow on the ground. Right, right. Uh, so I, I do think weather makes a big difference. Totally. Um, but I, I, I do I do appreciate not having to get into a car. Yeah, I mean... Not having to park a car. And there's, 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 there's obviously benefits of cost. Like, if you literally don't have to own a car... Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a car payment. That's yeah. insurance. I mean, especially with the and that's this is a topic that's different. But I mean, you know, the rising prices of cars, used cars and new cars, which are extremely high. Right. I mean, you're talking five to six hundred bucks in savings a month with oh, gas and insurance. It, it so, does. Yeah, it it matters to people. But uh, how much are you going to spend on Uber and Lyft and Instacart? I don't know. Uh, is it offset? Uh, I you know I I have no idea. This just I would I would love. 
obviously this concept's already broken ground. Yeah. So let's just keep tabs on it. Yeah. I mean, it it does make a difference, though, just because just um, here in the St. Louis area, we have very poor public transportation. Yes. And um, the that is kind of a hurdle in order to attract people from outside of St. Louis that are used to easy access to public transportation. Yeah. And so... Makes uh, sense. Like, those people that are relocating to St. Louis for a new job, if they're living in New York City and they don't have a car, or some of them are living in the Bay Area and they don't have a car because they have access to some sort of commuter shuttle that takes them to their corporate campus. Yeah. Those people, when they're making the decision, hey, I got to come here. Oh, wait, I also got to buy a car. Oh, also, I got to factor in, like, gas and uh, I've got to factor in traffic and commute time and i've got my family so oh wait i'll need two cars because you have to get a car to get around anywhere it's true yeah and maybe that's where my mindset of maybe being naive is i think yeah i think there's definitely people out there that would appreciate it but i i think that it's fair to be skeptical about how much of a market there is out there for this this type of community Again, I think if the community itself is somewhat self-sustaining, like if you <laughs> built a grocery store in this community and it's only like half a mile, like city center from everything, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because yeah, all right, I wouldn't mind, you know, getting on a scooter and right, right, ride down to the grocery store real quick, and right. you don't have to buy a week's worth of groceries because I could literally just, I live here, I work here, or yeah. whatever, I could just stop by on my way home and grab something and well and also earlier we we had talked about the um i guess kind of the growth of shared workspaces yeah there's a lot of people that you know they work from home or they work on the go they don't have a designated fixed office space if you're someone who doesn't like a car doesn't you know feel the need to get out and get around you know with quick and easy access all over town and you work from home and you don't have to leave your house every day in order to work, then, you know, maybe this is a community that would attract you. Um, Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Fantastic point. Yeah, yeah. And you're, like you said, short railway straight into Phoenix, which is massive. Right. So, yeah, okay. Right. See, look, you're selling me on something. Well, uh, yeah. This is what he does. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm selling you on something that I'm not even sold on. Uh, <laughs> that's what makes you a good selling agent. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's uh, if you want to check that out, it's called uh, Cul-de-Sac. So go- Google that. Uh, One word. And there is uh, an article on Inman today. Um, Chris, you got anything else on this uh, weird housing developments? No, I mean, it's... I love keeping texts on everything that's changing. It's yeah, it's very interesting. I didn't even know about the cul-de-sac thing until you brought it up. So yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, something. It's, we'll we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah. All right.